Nice to see everybody tonight. So um, we'll be spending our night together. Uh, Dharma Corps, I believe, is in the other room. And uh, next week we'll have small groups. I sent out an email earlier this afternoon with some reflections for the small groups for next week. So you can take a look at that. So just as a review, the last few weeks we looked at what in the tradition is called mundane right view. It's not a great term. It seems a little bit dismissive, but it's actually not dismissive at all. You know, when the Buddha talks about this level of right view, he calls he calls this degree of right view um, like the light of the world, I think is one of the phrases he used. Without this light in our mind, we're, we really don't know uh, how to avoid stepping, tripping over our own feet and keep creating problems for ourselves. In terms of our involvement in the world, our actions in the world, we just would keep setting in motion negative results because we don't have that basic sense of what's skillful and what's not skillful. So this initial level of right view we're talking about as the dawning on the mind of, oh, this is how it works. This is how I avoid everybody hating me, or this is how I avoid everybody being out to get me, get me, or how I avoid all these negative consequences arising in my life. This is how I play the game so that life isn't worse than it needs to be, more difficult than it needs to be. And we talk about it in the tradition which goes to the other parts of the, you know, we use our basic mundane right view then to engage the part of life we call our relationships or sila. So how we get along, how we interact with everybody in our lives. So we know it matters. We know there's a difference between relating in skillful and relating in unskillful ways. We may not be masters of that, but at least we know there's a difference between skillful and unskillful. And we have a sense of humility, like I know there are more or less skillful ways to handle the situation that's showing up for me. So let me, based on as much as I know, try to be skillful, to set emotion positive results. And if I don't end up setting emotion positive results, that may be reflective. So I'll refine this basic level of skill, what is skillful, what is unskillful in life. So that, you know, is our, that's that part of the path we call sila, ethical conduct, is taking mundane right view and refining it by paying attention to our interactions in the world. And then samadhi is, we're taking that basic right view, which is there are skillful and unskillful qualities in my mind, and the unskillful qualities should not be fed, they should be starved. And the skillful, wholesome qualities of mind should be fed, they shouldn't be starved. Like qualities of loving kindness, we should recognize as wholesome. So samadhi, on this mundane level, is we want our mind to be skillful, just like with sila, we want our external life 
to be beautiful, our relationships to be harmonious and to be treated in ways that feel good and to treat others in ways that feel good, don't have a negative reverberation in our heart. And so samadhi is just doing that in the internal environment and sila is doing it in the external environment. We're taking mundane right view. That we, I inhabit a world of skillful and unskillful. And my basic task as a human being, as a spiritual being, is to get wiser about what's skillful, what sets emotion positive, pleasant results, and what sets emotion unpleasant, unskillful, or unwholesome results. And then the more we do that on the level of our external lives and on the level of our internal lives, so we have, you know, the ease of, you know, freedom from remorse because we're living harmoniously and we have a calm mind where we have samadhi because we have some competence about unskillful qualities which we have starved, you know, we've learned over the years not to feed them. And wholesome qualities of mind, we've learned over the years how to feed. And generally, we feed the wholesome by noticing wholesome qualities, noticing kindness when it's operating, noticing patience, noticing clarity when it's operating is how you strengthen it. And how you starve an unwholesome quality like aversion or impatience or irritation is you recognize it without getting identified with it. When we get identified with the unwholesome qualities of mind, they get stronger. And you, this is something we can directly see. You know, in a set, a lot of the time is spent feeding and starving different qualities. So we can directly see how we the mind gets wound up. You know, because we notice the mind is wound up, and then without much skill, we can reflect, oh, I've been spinning with this. I've been identified with this pain and this story for the last 10 minutes. No wonder it has a head of steam. Or the mind's really quiet. Well, we haven't been feeding the unwholesome patterns. We've been paying attention to calm. That strengthens it. Or we've been paying attention to this kind way of relating to the unpleasantness in the body. And so the kind way of relating has gotten stronger because we've been noticing it. We've been acknowledging it. We Wholesome qualities of mind need to be acknowledged. That's how we express this mundane right view. We feed the wholesome and we starve the unwholesome. Externally in terms of our relationships and internally in terms of how we recognize the qualities of mind. That's how we know on this basic level of right view or wisdom that we're training with the Eightfold Path. We're taking the path begins with right view but on a mundane level and then we go into our working ground, how we work in the world in terms of our relationships and how we work with our mind. And that really starts to stabilize things and that stability uh, which you could call like the beginnings of samadhi real samadhi it it naturally leads to a deeper 
you could say glimpses of a deeper kind of right view. So not a mundane right view, but a, in the tradition sometimes it's translated as super mundane right view. Or a taste of freedom, you could say, a real freedom. So not just life is working well, not that kind of freedom, but a spiritual freedom. And the, the initial taste of that kind of freedom is not, again, that far away. This is something that we've all had. We might not have recognized it as such. And what I want to talk more about tonight is how simple, natural experiences of love have this flavor of real freedom. And even more simply, experiences of calm. Any kind of holistic experience, like the mind that for a moment or for a few moments isn't fragmented, you know, our thoughts about things and the mind identification with thoughts, like even something simple like this is a great class, which is just a thought. But if the mind gets fixed on it, then our experience starts to get fragmented because the experience of body and mind being known starts getting fragmented with, I wonder if the next Buddhist studies will be as good. Or why wasn't the fall class as good as this class? Or whatever, you know, we, because of that mind fixing on this idea, which was just a thought, this is a great class, but this class sucks. So whatever it is, to the degree the mind fixes on it, then the mind, because it's attachment, it's identification with the thought, just naturally feels, I guess, that there's a need to think about that attachment, right? To proliferate. Because it has a charge, a personal charge. That's what identification does. It is the arising of a personal charge. When we have a personal charge, then there's this personal feeling, I should do something about that personal charge. Why don't I think another thought about what I just thought? Because it feels charged, like it's personally significant. So that's how we generally, sometimes we actually act in the world, but in the most simple expression, we just think about it again and think about it again because we keep replicating the charge. We think something and get identified with it, which gives it a charge, and that's that's the proliferation. But when things settle down, when we have that experience of basic calm, maybe even some of you touched that tonight in the guided meditation, and you were just feeling in moments a real sense of stillness or space or whole, a holistic, non-fragmented experience, a, an experience of mind and body not fragmented by thought with identification. There might have been thought, but was there identification sort of fragmenting, breaking up, creating a dualistic experience of good and bad, here and later, the past and now, me and you. That's the that division or that fragmentation is agitating. So when that goes away to some degree, then we're having the flavor of right view, not mundane right view, but a, a flavor of liberation because in a very simple way, the mind is beginning to experience liberation or freedom from the constrictions, the fragmentations of concepts or of dualism. 
this and that, me and you, good and bad. And you probably even notice, like even in that stillness or in that calm, there are moments of calm and there's moments of the mind identified with its thoughts about how calm it is, right? Or whatever the mind is saying about the experience. And you can just, you get, you can get very attuned and it's actually useful to get very attuned to moving in the direction of fragmentation, agitation, heaviness, and moving in the direction of release. And, uh, I've, you know, we've now gone through the first three sets of the instructions, 16 instructions. So first four ends with experiencing calm in the body or calming the body, breathing in, calming the body, breathing out. Then the second four is really around um, the pleasantness and feeling tone. And it ends with the calming of the mental formations, breathing in, calming the mental formations, breathing out. And then the next set of four begins with experiencing the mind, satisfying the mind or appreciating the mind, stilling the mind, experiencing the stillness, concentration of mind. And then I didn't say this uh, at the end, but it's releasing of the mind. So the mind is releasing any more subtle remains of fragmentation. It's experiencing, it's tasting freedom. It's having a taste of freedom, releasing the mind. And so one of the interesting things is to notice just in very ordinary ways, not so much the nth degree of that release, but in ordinary moments how the mind is either moving in the direction of complications, weight, fragmentation, or in the direction of release. And how, you know, the thing about uh, experiences of good-heartedness, or basic goodwill, basic goodness of the heart, basic friendliness of the heart, metta. The thing about metta is we can get to know it. And then once we know it as a real, direct, immediate experience, then we're capable of remembering it, even when mostly the mind is dominated by ill will. Right? Because it's not far away. <laughs> it's never far away. Because metta isn't a thing. It's the absence of ill will. Right? So it's really, you could say, the nature of the mind when it's, when the mind isn't constructing the experience of ill will. A dualistic sense that this is bad, or this is bothering me, or this is in the way of me being happy. This shouldn't be this way. Why is this happening to me? So it's, I, th- I find it really useful. You know, it's sort of funny in the, and I heard, you know, you hear sometimes in the tradition, I don't believe this exactly. I, I understand what people mean when they say this, but you know, you, you hear that, well, metta isn't a liberating practice. And what they're pointing to is that in the Vasudhimaga and other commentaries that arose after the time of the Buddha, 
you know, the metta practice was uh, used as a concentration practice to get really deep states of absorption, which are temporary experiences that are very healing and liberating to a degree, but they don't uproot the ignorance in the mind. So, on that level, as a specific meditation practice, it's probably true in a limited sense what people are saying. But to somehow imagine that real experiences of love, metta, which is the heart including things as they are, that is in the direction of right view. That's not different than wisdom. And it's because it's so accessible for us, because we're always playing. I mean, to the degree we know the experience of ill will, well, then we know something about the opposite, right? You can't know the experience of ill will. You know, if you have some memory, some way of being able to identify ill will when it's present in your mind, in your body and heart, then you know something about not ill will. And some of us have had much more than, you know, knowing like a lot of ill will, a little bit less ill will. You know, probably all of us have experienced not just a little less ill will, but moments when the ill will really didn't seem present in the mind. And we can cultivate, we can sort of distill that experience. You know, this is the the thing about reflection and about intending. Like on this mundane level, as we get a sense through paying attention and making a lot of mistakes, what's actually skillful, what's actually not skillful, then we can start intending what we've learned is skillful. Why wouldn't we? You know, why... (laughs) Why wouldn't we aim the mind, aim the heart in the direction that doesn't hurt so much? This is just what living creatures do, not even creatures sophisticated like human beings, but even really simple creatures, when they learn that they get burnt when they do this, and when they learn they feel good when they do this other thing, well, they do this other thing, and they don't do that one that leads to them getting burnt. So I thought of a few things um, that we can look at and maybe get some of your feedback as we go through them. Just how metta and wisdom really are the same thing. And um, <clears throat> so for the next few weeks, we're, or, yeah, maybe two weeks, we'll really look at how mundane right view leads into a deeper experience of the heart's release. The heart experiencing the cessation of mental activity that fragments our experience, that divides up our experience into a dualistic uh, frame. So there's a liberation from separation, you know, because separation is a dualistic concept. There's me and then there's the world. So, and it's not the same as no thought. It's the mind's not confused by thoughts. It's not clinging to thoughts. Obviously, the fewer thoughts, 
the easier it is to do. But, you know, you could have, like, we can be concentrated in an ordinary sense of the world word on really negative things. You know, the easiest thing to get concentrated on is, like, how much you want to get revenge or how much it wasn't fair what somebody did to you. I mean, we can get really locked in to those things. So the mind might be like not even have a lot of thought. It's just locked in. So it's not about how many thoughts. It's about the experience. Is it fragmented or is it whole? Is it light? See, when it's when we experience this present moment, this experience of the body-mind in a holistic way, then there's nothing frozen, there's nothing stiff or even solid. Because from a holistic point of view, all there is is movement. And movement doesn't have weight. What creates a sense, the appearance of weight, is when there's movement and something that doesn't want it to move. (laughs) Then we have this sort of hard, heavy, unpleasant experience. So one of the reasons we work with titi and the uh, um, pleasantness of mind and body is when the concentration, when things start to settle down and we've trained the mind like to pay attention to the sensations and not to pay attention to the thoughts, they may be there, but we're really training the mind just like the first two instructions with mindfulness of breathing, just be with sensations, breathing in, sensations, breathing out, being alert enough. So we put down the (coughs) thoughts to some degree. They may happen in the background, but we're not attending to them. We start to experience things moving. They've always been moving. Sensations move, thoughts move. And friction, it's just the appearance of friction. Things still are moving, but there can be an appearance, there can be the appearance of like not wanting something to move. It's still moving, but the resistance is like, I'm afraid of that movement. I want to be in control. I don't want things to be fluid. So part of what we're doing as we move to a more holistic quality of everything belonging, which is like metta, is things are allowed to move because everything belongs. We're not dividing up our experience in any way with concepts. So we start to feel things moving. So like even that beginning of when we're noticing the Buddha's inviting us to notice joy, it's the same thing when we're learning how to experience metta. You know, it's not just about churning through phrases The phrases is just using phrase like may you be happy or may I be happy. It's just a skillful means. What we're trying to notice is this free movement. The knowing mind not evaluating experience in terms of good and bad. Right? So this inclusive quality, it has a sense of movement or flow or unrestricted movement. You might even start to feel it as waves of energy, like an unrestricted movement, whether it's a movement of emotion or thought or sensation or some combination that you don't even need to discern the difference of. Because 
what we're interested in is the free movement, is in the unrestrictedness. Because that's the telltale sign of a more holistic, undivided way of being. And so you'll see, like when you're in a social situation, and for whatever, however, for whatever reason, you have a more basic sense of friendliness, you'll just feel how the interaction is more natural and free-flowing. You know, and when you have really heavy-duty expectations or you need to prove yourself, you need to be seen or you want the person to like you or whatever unwholesome tendency might be active with identification, we'll see just the opposite. You know, things will feel tight and controlled and heavy and important, self-important. So this is nice because it really helps train us that, you know, loving kindness isn't a stance. Compassion isn't a stance. Joy isn't a stance. It's a, there's a naturalness, an unrestrictedness in the experience, a free flowing. And one of the telltale characteristics is it doesn't feel personal. Like, however well that experience unfolded for us, when we reflect on it, I mean, we can take it, make it personal, but it doesn't have a personal feeling. It feels like it just happened that way. That's part of what makes it so beautiful and feels so right, is that nobody had to do it. It just happened. It was a, a natural expression. So I thought of some things, some qualities of metta that I think relate quite well to wisdom and right view. And some of them I've already covered. And feel free to ask questions or share experiences as I go through this list. I think I have about seven. Metta is a universal, unbiased, non-discriminative, and all-inclusive. So one of the characteristics about this free movement, it's a, a generosity of the heart. And, you know, we talk about this when we do the formal loving-kindness practice, as it's described in the later, you know, commentaries after the time of the Buddha, you know, where you bring yourself to mind or bring another person to mind, and you practice sending out. I mean, it's a very systematic way, basically, to force the mind out of its habit to be stingy. It's about me. It's about me getting what I want. So even when I'm nice to you, it's because I'm in this business-like relationship where if I'm nice to you, then you're going to have to be nice to me and I'll feel safe. But the, what we're trying to do is tune in, although it's, it's sometimes a lot of work, but the idea of like making yourself say the phrase is you're trying to uncover the naturalness of generosity, like the heart's capacity to have a generous wish for yourself or for another being, that it doesn't have to be forced. So you might see, because of our habit energy conditioning, like a lot of reasons not to want to say or send out that wish one more time. But we keep finding like um, all those intentions in the mind I'm tired and this is stupid. 
we find one more time, yeah, but that person's a living being and I do care about them. May you be at ease. Or if you're working with yourself, may I be at ease. So, and each time we say it, we're trying to find a natural movement so that that upwelling of the heart, that generous wish, is just like nature. Of course, I want you to be happy. That's why we start with the easy person. And then when we're more, when the mind is more attuned to that natural generosity of the heart, then to challenge it by spreading out until all beings, all things are included. So we want to notice this universal, unbiased, non-discriminative, all-inclusive, and generous quality. And to see that as uh, the cessation, right? Nibbana is defined as the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion. So the generous heart, real generosity, that upwelling, the giving away, it's like the opposite of any sense of self is going to be self-important and self-protecting. That's the characteristic of self. So even when the self does really nice things, it's because it thinks it's going to get something for doing nice things. So real generosity is stepping beyond that. It's realizing that there's a way of being that's not separate and defending the separate sense of self. Ajahn Sumedho says, metta includes the totality of our world and experience. It includes every possibility, the born and the unborn, the created and the uncreated, those who are present and those who are absent. With metta, we contemplate all phenomena, all sentient beings in terms of loving kindness and inclusiveness, rather than in the divisive terms of which is best, which is worse, what we like, what we don't like. Metta, then, is the way we relate to the totality, which is what the, that's that same as whole, that holistic experience, or the present moment not divided up by concept. And then a little later says, in this way we develop a sense of well-being, recognizing that everything belongs in the totality, that there is nothing we can think of or imagine, nothing that has ever happened to us that doesn't belong. And then another quality is metta is non-controlling, non-aggressive. It has the capacity to be gentle, soft, kind, yielding. So really like no attainment idea, no expectation idea. And the example I often give for this, because it, it just so clearly would be wrong. You know, if you were with a good friend or a family member who was really sick. And of course, you're showing up, you're trying to be helpful. But it would be so clearly inappropriate that our showing up and our willingness to help them was dependent on them getting better. So it's like real generosity doesn't depend on our generosity changing the situation. We're not generous in order to make them better. We do want them to get better. But we're showing up, we're helping, we're doing whatever seems good to do because that's the free 
unrestricted movement of the heart, mind, body. That's what nature does when it's not afraid, when it's not attached or identified with its neediness. So it's not, there's no uh, aggressive, controlling, needing, wanting something back. And now, of course, in our actual experience, we flip back and forth. So don't think because there are moments when you are needy, you are getting tired, you really want their illness to go away because it's a pain in the butt for them and for me, that you don't have the other end, the moments of real freedom. And that can be really confusing. Like we might want to beat ourselves up because we have moments when we're being despicable, you know. I remember, this was years and years ago, some of you know Wendy Morris, a long, long time community member and leader. And um, But this is when Izzy, her now 17-year-old or 18-year-old daughter, was young, not an infant, but maybe one or two. Um, And just saying like, sometimes, like how angry, how upset, how feeling burdened she was by having this young kid that she was responsible for, how overwhelming, how wanting so much to be done with it, you know, like, what did I do, that sort of thing, and she brought it up in one of her talks here at Common Ground, um, way back in the late 90s, I think, whenever that was, when Izzy was young, and, uh, you know, to be honest, and then not think that's the whole truth. You know, and especially with child, you know, there are moments when that full submission to the activity, to the responsibilities of being a parent is exactly that experience of freedom, right? There's like the non-fear, the mind not constructing a somebody who's overwhelmed or constructing a somebody who's going to be suffocated by the commitment. It's just... so. That's like a free movement. Outwardly, it may look like that person is totally overwhelmed by the details of being a mother or father. But the inward experience is free movement. There's no problem. That's why, ultimately, there's no problem being busy or in a war zone or any of these other really difficult, oppressive situations. The problem comes up when the mind thinks it's a problem or imagines that life should be a different way. And then there's resistance to what's moving, internally, externally. But that resistance can fall away in any moment. And that's what—that's the possibility we want to recognize, this ability to go beyond any sort of fear, any aggressiveness, any control. And then we can realize the nimbleness of metta or the the creative force of wisdom and metta. Because when we don't have a stance, when there's no rigidities in the mind, fixed notions in the mind, then it's like uh, the, the mind is really sensitive. And so as soon as like... uh, fear starts to enter or the feedbacks, what we're seeing or hearing, noticing, sort of 
It's all just integrated naturally. In the same way water, this is an image that's used in the early teachings, you know, just like water finds its way down the hill, how we are in the world, how we are with our mind, when we get out of the way, when all there is is this generosity of the heart, like the heart that cares, the heart that is showing up, the heart that's willing to be sensitive, then the activity takes care of itself. And this is a nice way to think about right view and loving kindness. Instead of like trying to do it or thinking of it in terms of an activity, it's more about this view. Like, uh, this is why it's such a nice word, this release of the heart, releasing the mind, releasing the heart. So, it's more about non-aversion. So, the releasing of aversion, the releasing of fear, the releasing of the need to be skillful, the idea that I want to be skillful. And then that, it's like learning to trust that release and the nimbleness of it and the creative uh, possibilities of that release. Like if we thought about Tuesday and really wanting to be skillful, let's say Tuesday is going to be difficult for us and difficult meetings or whatever. You know, what would be the most useful, most skillful way to have a good Tuesday? I'm not saying that planning doesn't help, but in the end, we have to put the planning down or the fixed ideas of how to do Tuesday. And we actually have to live. And so living is really about this release. And the question is, how do we find our way to that release? You know, so the Buddha teaches, well, the continuity of mindful awareness, especially on what's non-conceptual, like the physicality of the body, reaching, walking, washing dishes, or just that can lead to moments of flow. Or love is another means into that, finding a way into an attitude or an understanding that everything belongs, that we don't have to be afraid. Yeah, Andy. Oh, no, that's not true. Haven't you, out of kindness, done some forceful things? Because it's the thing about these uh, <clears throat> tendencies of our mind, like to be greedy or to be defensive or to need approval or to think we're not worth much, these patterns have a real coherence to them. They have a a, a life of their own that a real integrity. They're as real as anything. Like a weather system is real. You know, there are these forces. And they have ways, part of that coherence is to replicate itself, to reinforce itself. So it takes intention to weaken, to not continue to feed that system. So we can't be to be um to think that kindness only has one expression which is submission 
or allowing is to misunderstand what kindness is. This is what I meant about it's really about getting out of the way. It's really about dropping the stance and letting the response come from the generosity of the heart. And sometimes, like Ajahn Sumedho says, you know, sometimes it's a pat, nice, nice doggy, and sometimes it's a slap. And that can be just as much an act of wisdom and kindness as a pat. And sometimes the pat is not wise or kind. I used to, back in the 80s and 90s, studied a lot of child psychology. And one of the things that uh, researchers find that some of the children that have uh, the most difficult time in life were the ones that uh, where there, there was sort of uh, inconsistent treatment, you know, getting inconsistent messages and uh, and also messages like that didn't uh, help them understand cause and effect you know, sort of a disconnected parent. And uh, so we really need life, which means our friends and our parents, and we need them to help uh, teach us about cause and effect. And sometimes in certain situations, the only way we're going to learn if we really get slapped, like, oh yeah, that hurts. And it's the same way with the, internally in our minds. You know, when we see something coming up over and over again, there are moments when it's really appropriate to say, no, no, I'm not going to do this. In the same way that a mother would say, no, you're not putting that bobby pin in the electrical outlet. You know, whatever it takes, you're not doing it. And uh, so we have to be willing to let the situation determine the response. Like what love looks like, what wisdom looks like, instead of having fixed notions of it. The other uh, thing that's talked a lot in the tradition about loving kindness or metta is that it knows how to meet the moment. And this relates to this too, that nimbleness. And this is especially relevant with pleasant experience. That real love, real wisdom, isn't afraid of success, isn't afraid of joy or pleasant experience because it knows what to do. Not take it personally, not wanting to capture it so it will be mine forever, but to appreciate it. And then we learn that in the mindfulness of breathing instructions too. It's, it's what's so nice about these 16 instructions. They are so comprehensive we can complain that the Buddha didn't really give us a lot to go on because they're so pithy. But it's really nice. The whole path is there. And one of the things we see is, you know, it's really important when things are beautiful to appreciate the beauty. We have to really let it in, let it touch the heart. Because otherwise, if, we, if we're not mindful, if we're not sensitive, we're not really there in the beauty, in the pleasantness of the beauty, then we're going to get attached. right? Either we don't think we're worthy, and so we create an artificial barrier, or we're obsessed with holding on to it, 
which is another way of separating from the joy, disconnecting from the joy or beauty. It's so ironic that it's actually quite challenging for us just to be intimate with pleasant states, wholesome states, however ordinary they are. We tend not to notice them. Or if we do notice them, we tend to react. We tend to get tight in in our own sort of particular ways. Joseph Goldstein has a great line, more at the negative end of this. Um, we might be experiencing a difficult experience, experience, but why do we need to add an immutable, horrible self-image to it? Like, Metta really knows how to meet the experience. It's more about what's not added on than like, oh yeah, I want to relate with kindness. And this is the great thing, like all the messages we get, it's, it's about being open. Wisdom and love is about including. But remember, including, like this is where it can get confusing. It sounds like just allowing, but including also means including the strong force arising from the personality to respond, to do, to stand up and say something because it needs to be said. And this gets really confusing, especially when we talk about uh, Buddhism engaging the world of injustice and uh, wanting to speak up or wanting, recognizing that things should change, that people are suffering and something needs to be done. And that can, just because we're practicing opening, it's really liberating the personality that cares. You know, whatever, to whatever degree compassion is conditioned into the personality, then that exposure is going to lead to a powerful response, a powerful appreciation of what's beautiful, a strong, compassionate response to what's not beautiful and needs addressing. And it's really about getting out of the way of controlling that response. It doesn't mean the response is perfect because compassion may not be perfectly integrated into the personality. So it may be some compassion, it may be some anger or fear. But then if we continue cultivating an open presence, we'll see like how our response isn't really helping perfectly. And we'll distill, oh yeah, I'm afraid or I'm angry or I'm, I'm reinforcing, I'm feeding the idea of separation. Those guys are bad. You know, we're right, they're wrong. That sort of trusting or reinforcing the notion of separation or difference. Metta is patient, stable, strong, and resilient, even fierce. So we talked about this a little already. There's a great line uh, from the Buddhist text. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. And Ajahn Sumedho sort of responded to your similar question. And his answer was, If you think kindness is a sentimental niceness that you apply to every situation equally, then of course it's not going to work. Nobody can do that. And the more you try, the more foolish you are. 
And the more people won't have respect for you because it's not genuine. Real metta is strong and it is an appropriate response to life. It isn't a bland niceness, but an alertness, a responsiveness to pain and pleasure and to the other conditions that we must bear. And then uh, metta is non-superficial, intimate, non-conceptual. It allows conditions to express their nature to arise and cease. And this is what I meant too about learning to trust it. You know, first we have to learn how to recognize it, like the difference between self-view and love or self-centered drama and wisdom. This is sort of the refinement of what's skillful and unskillful. It eventually gets distilled into the presence or absence of dukkha that inner constriction. So it's like we may not know how to respond in the moment, what the moment is asking for, or how to be skillful. But what we can know is, is the heart or mind tight? And then the question is, it's like, if my mind is tight, that means that there's some the mind is colored right now by some wrong view. Right? If there's suffering, there's wrong view. So that means we should be suspicious. That's why sometimes the best thing to do is to hold back because the initial response has a constricted feeling. So maybe our first intention, our first motivation shouldn't be acted on. So we, like mindfulness allows for moments to pass. It doesn't mean we never respond, but it means that we're creating a sense of space for other intentions, other motivations to present themselves. And they may have a different flavor, may not be completely free of constriction, but more trustworthy, have more of a naturalness, more of a generosity of the heart feeling to them than other motivations or intentions. So we have to be willing to hang out in this space of not knowing, right? Because it's really a hard space for us. This is why we usually jump on the first intention that arises in our mind. Because to not do that means we're hanging out in a place where we don't know who we are, what we should do, or what's right or wrong. And I don't know about you, but I find that really hard to be in that place. Like I really want to know what's right or wrong, or what I should do. And to learn how to, and one of the things that really helps here is, well, one thing now I know is I can always have, and it's now relatively easy, I can always have some metta, some compassion, that it isn't easy being a human being, not knowing what I should do, not knowing what's up or down, what's right or wrong here. Not knowing how to be skillful. But I can have compassion, like compassion and and even appreciation, like I know I don't want to set in motion the causes for suffering for myself or others. So I can really appreciate that right now. That creates a sense of space. And in that space, 
wave after wave of the personality wanting to respond, wanting to do something, that I, now I have this trustworthy space. Like, I really don't want to make a mistake that causes me or others harm. I really care about this life. And I know it isn't easy being a human being. Until some motivation either I grab a hold of because I lost my mindfulness in a moment and I go and let's say make a mistake but then I hopefully will learn from it or I hang in there long enough that a relatively skillful motivation, intention arises. Well, why don't you do this? Why don't you say that? And we do it. And maybe it turns out to be skillful or maybe it turns out not to be skillful. But that's the game. That's sort of where we're at in our practice. And there are a few other things. Um, I sent a quote from Ajahn Chah that you can use to reflect on. And the other thing I sent in the email this afternoon was the stanza that's in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's talk on the, on mindfulness. Because what I thought you might want to share in your small groups next week is how just, you know, basically reframing mindfulness practice seeing things in and of themselves, like in a, the breath in and of itself, just in terms of sensation, not your idea of the breath, how that can be an act of kindness, an act of intimacy and generosity. Or seeing the arising and passing, that's the second instruction you'll see in the stanza. See the arising, the origination, and the passing away of all phenomena. That's that movement, right? So, the free movement, that's the joy. So part of love is trusting the movement of things or being intimate, that sense of awe and wonder and trust that everything is a movement of nature. And that's like really seeing that our job as a loving, kind human being is to learn, see life, see experience as a teacher teaching us what's skillful and unskillful. And to do that, we have to let things unfold. We have to let things come and go. We have to allow there to be a free movement in order for the situation to teach us whether we're operating with greed, anger, and delusion, or we're operating with love and wisdom. And the last, the most subtle part of the mindfulness practice is even a more radical trust just the, the reality of non-clinging or non-grasping. Sustaining mindfulness and that's all. So trusting that open presence and releasing everything else. And of course that open presence even isn't even something we have to do. It's sort of what's left when the mind releases. So that's the, the more subtle end of mindfulness practice, of course. And to notice how that also has the flavor of love. So whatever you take your spiritual practice to be in the next week, see if you can frame it or feel it as a quality of love, saying yes to everything, being intimate, seeing that everything belongs, letting everything in. And then that may be one of the things that seems relevant to share in the small groups next week. 